don't want to exclude Arch, we just want him to lift his performance. And attendance. <laughs> and attendance. Keeping a oh, record. This will be the best little outtakes thing at the start ever. Yeah. Kia ora everybody and welcome to 76 Small Rooms. We're a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. And this week, well first, I'm Jeremy Hansen. Matthew Brown is here. Natasha Markham is here. Arch is sadly doing the work of a real architect and has a big deadline, so is not with us. But is doing the editing, so hi Arch and thank you. Um, Today we're going to talk about Wellington's spatial plan and the way that a number of annoying people in that city are attempting to pull up the drawbridge on people that don't own homes and close down um, the plans contained in Wellington's spatial plan to densify parts of the city and remove protection from pre-1930s buildings. You can see that it's going to be a very unbiased take from my tone so far. Um, <laughs> Why don't you get to the Jeremy point? is angry, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess we should provide some context first, and I feel like I'm too much of a ranter to provide the context. So Tash, do you want to provide the context first of what the situation currently is in Wellington for those who haven't been following along? Thanks for that hospital bars. Um, I, um, so to, to give a very um, a brief overview, uh, Wellington have announced a new spatial plan. It anticipates how the city might grow over the next 30 years. And just to put some context around that, the pro- uh, population projections in terms of growth um, for the city of Wellington are around 50 to 80,000 people. And they really are predicting that it's going to be more towards the upper end of that scale. So how do you accommodate that sort of population growth within the the city of Wellington um, and manage things like character and uh, economic stability and quality of housing. It's all of those sorts of things that the spatial plan is attempting to address. How how is this for someone who hasn't done any homework and wouldn't be able to talk to this very strongly. Is that different to the unitary plan, or is it? Is this the, the thing that informs a revision of their district plan? That's a good question. I think it is, the, my understanding is that it is the, the thing that informs um, their um, district plan, um, for, for want of a better um, word. And it, it's really, a, I guess, a visionary document at this stage, but presumably there will be drop-down um, uh, you know, criteria, rules, whatever, that help to um, put more information around how that actually happens. Right. Isn't it also the case, and I hope someone in this room can answer the question <laughs> I'm positing here because I can't, but I think it's also that councils are now required to implement the legislation that the Labour government recently passed, which allows um, much greater density near transport nodes and in other parts of cities, which is a pretty amazing piece of legislation and pretty visionary and seems to have kind of gone through without too much fuss, but I think the fuss is now beginning that councils are having to consult on and implement that. Am I correct in it, that it removes removes the abilities for councils to limit development below six levels. I think that's right. So the, the and I, I suspect the spatial plan, that process has started well before legislation has come out. Ah, gotcha. Because yeah. okay. that's yeah. relatively new. But both will now inform it, which yes. is, I suspect, why, mm. um, why the locals are talking about six-storey buildings. Um, but that would, um, that would have effect anyway, 
it, it, separate to the spatial plan, I would have thought. Mm. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, what this has resulted in really is this huge argument about heritage in Wellington and the fact that a lot of people who own homes in Wellington and I guess some who don't like the rhythm of these um, character suburbs which are populated mostly with villas and bungalows and these are you know admittedly quite charming places um, to wander around but we're also talking about a city which is now experiencing a severe housing crisis um, rentals have skyrocketed um, purchase prices for houses um, have skyrocketed um, there is a great shortage of housing in the city that is only getting worse and what has infuriated me about this discussion is that I feel like a lot of these homeowners are privileging so-called heritage over the actual need to provide housing for a whole lot of people that need it now and are going to need it in the future and it's this kind of classic NIMBY argument of it's like not here not now, not like that. And we've seen that play out in other cities across New Zealand, particularly in Auckland, not just in Wellington. Um, but it's like, come on, get a grip. We have to have housing somewhere and it can't just be, we've already proven that um, expanding into greenfields forevermore delivers terrible outcomes on a number of levels. Health, um, quality of life, um, commute times, class structures, all that kind of thing. Um, so that's part of what's been really objectionable to me. And I feel like heritage is a bit of a um, a bit of a way a bit of a way for people to kind of argue their case without actually grappling with the real issues that are at stake here. Look absolutely I mean uh, height and heritage, they're the two quick easy grasps, <laughs> yes. right? And I think, you know, it, it's really interesting when you actually look at the spatial plan. I mean first of all I would say that people generally are don't like change very much mm. but I would argue that cha change is happening regardless of whether it is mapped out and planned or whether it is happening incrementally around you. Um, your cities are not the same as they were five or ten years or twenty years ago so um, plans like the spatial plan provide some opportunity to actually um, set out a vision about how growth and change might happen rather than just letting it go to market forces. I think the thing um, about um, uh, the Wellington situation too is that from what I've read the spatial plan is not advocating for raising all the villas. In fact actually what it is, sets out are some um, very clear areas where large tracts of, of villas and heritage buildings will remain intact. And, and I think what they're looking for are the kind of those areas which have contiguous, consistent development. Where they're looking at um, uh, making it easier to redevelop properties that may or may not have villas on them, are perhaps we might get more isolated um, incidents of old buildings, or perhaps where the, the general housing stock is not of a great quality. I mean, I think it's really important to remember with, with the likes of the villas and the bungalows that they were the mass housing solution <laughs> of the 1900s. Individually, I mean, obviously there's always exceptions, but individually, they're not remarkable per se. They really have, I think, great impact as a 
collective. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's exceptions always. And so I think, from what I've read, the spatial plan looks to really preserve and, and perhaps elevate those areas, but then also provide some opportunities alongside that for getting greater density, which will probably have a benefit in terms of the vibrancy and economic viability of those very heritage areas. Mm. That's a really good point. And I mean, we touched on it earlier, but the, the fact that the villas actually, in terms of the housing solution, are well outdated in terms of their technology, the health of the people who live in them. You know, they, yeah, they, I think it's fair to say there's some charm, as there are um, there's charm to parts of Auckland and the villas here. But in terms of you know, actually housing people, um, you know, there's a, a sounds like there's a, an alternative developing which would be much better. And um, you know, if it's especially a moment where it's ge- geographically constrained as well um, seems like the obvious choice. I think the, I think, I think choice is a, is a really good thing to pick up on. To my mind, one of the things, one of the benefits about living in a city is having choice. And that's mm. choice in terms of places that you can go, but it's also a choice in terms of housing. And we do need to recognise that New Zealand does not only consist of, you know, family groups with um, two parents and 2.4 children or whatever. There are a myriad of different family types and being able to provide different housing options starts to cater for the range of different groups out there who are looking for housing. And at the moment, I don't think that's um, greatly reflected in our um, no, in right. our housing. And actually, ironically, one of the kind of hotbeds of this um, protectionist activity seems to be the suburb of Mount Victoria, which is often featured in those shots of Wellington with all these villas clinging to the hills and things. So somebody pointed out in an article in Stuff today, those properties are so highly valued, it's very unlikely that a developer would be able to yield a whole lot of money mm. out of buying them and building higher anyway. Um, in, but in the same way that we haven't seen a lot of sort of multi-sites in Auckland being purchased up. That's right. Joined into one. Because the value's so high, we yeah. mean, yeah. But also Mount Vic, is, and ironically, there's one in the background of this shot of this woman um, who's complaining about protecting, or who wants to protect Wellington's character today. It has a lot of really good mid-century four to five floor, you know, concrete mm. apartment blocks that are great models of medium density living. And they're either weirdly invisible to these people, but Penelope Ball and hello, you're the one in stuff today, um, <laughs> being photographed on the street in front of her own place. But there's this really good four-storey concrete block just down the street from her and so another two floors on top of that isn't going to kill her and also not all these blocks have to be six floors anyway and it's kind of they're living amongst good examples of medium density housing and still kind of freaking out about the possibility of medium density housing I'm just like what is wrong with you Take a look around, sister. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, look, you know, I think it does come back to that question of change, and people are really resistant to change, particularly when it's, you know, given to them like this. And the reality is that they're not going to wake up one day and see, you know, suddenly. They'll have <laughs> the no sun touch, there'll be no sun. city built out like that. It happens much more slowly. But isn't it better to have a plan to work to mm-hmm. that, you know, gives people some view about what's happening and what's going to change. I like how they talk about it like it's an eclipse, like there'll never be sun in Wellington again because <laughs> it'll be occluded by six, a wall of six-storey buildings blocking it out forever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, 
I mean, I, I think it's perhaps worth touching on sort of some of the um, uh, the key words that the Wellington City Plan is um, organised around. And, and so I'll just quote here the list. First is compact, this idea that it's going to be a compact, de- develop, um, compact city um, development. The second is resilient, and I think that's a really important one. It goes back to that kind of question of choice about having, um, you know, a a housing profile that actually supports the economy, the economy of, like, local shops and restaurants and all of those sorts of things that people really enjoy about their neighbourhoods. Which density enhances, It absolutely does. Mm. Um, Vibrancy and, um, and... um, being prosperous again, choice, diversity, all of those things and density contribute to that. Inclusive and connected. Hmm. And the other idea is greener. And I think that's a really interesting one. But when you look at some of the stats um, associated with um, an alternative mode of development, say expanding their metropolitan urban limits, and you look at the way that land is being used not just for the actual houses themselves but the infrastructure to serve them being roads um, the supply of services the cost of those the cost of maintaining those over a lifetime I think the which falls to ratepayers right totally Mm. totally you know I remember I think it was this information is probably a little bit out of of date now but uh, uh, 18 months two years ago in Auckland it cost around $160,000 to service a greenfield site. That's just to supply the the kind of the infrastructure to get that site connected to the grid before you you've one started site. One, one site, house. one house site. Wow. And so then you kind of take not just that startup cost, but then the ongoing cost to the city and the ratepayers mm. to you know to maintain those sewage pipes and the water mm. supply and the roading network. You know, it's it's not a great way to develop our city. Mm. I mean, you know, let alone the fact that there are implicit social costs built into that because generally the, perhaps the people who can least afford it end up living the furthest away and have to commute the most, are reliant on, say, two-car minimum to get everybody to jobs and all of that sort of thing. You know, it's it's not... It's not a very um, equitable way to develop our cities. Whereas I think if we can kind of concentrate services into um, tighter areas, then we can actually look at addressing affordability um, in a better way. We can also look at systems to green because, again, we've got sort of a um, critical mass to work with and can start to deliver that through open space networks. It's... um, I guess it's about allocation of resources. One of the interesting things that's come up as I've argued with people on Twitter about this is that um, a counterpoint a lot of people have used as I try and argue for more density is that they say, but it'll be bad. Developers yeah. do terrible things. Um, it'll be ugly, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We'll be, our neighbourhoods will be blighted forever with this terrible design. And firstly, I think that's a completely separate issue. But also I say to them, but 
if you're advocating as a community to keep heritage, then why don't you advocate for better design? And it's interesting that they feel kind of powerless yeah. somehow to advocate for that, but I also think it's hard for people to know what that necessarily looks like. I think, and I think that is, you're absolutely right on that last statement. I mean, I think, I agree with you, I think that that's, it is a separate issue. The, the, the issue about how do we incentivise good design is a different one. At the end of the day, developers build our cities. That's kind of just the way it is. Mm. Um, so how do you get developers to do better work? And there's heaps of different ways that that can be um, incentivised and encouraged. Um, but I think the question of well, what does good design look like when it's multi-storey and things that we aren't familiar with perhaps in, mm. in the first instance. Because not a lot of good examples of, you know, think about redeveloping city, not a lot of good examples of tracts of six-storey high apartment buildings that are good in New Zealand. No, there's yeah. no heaps. No. I mean, you almost need to go back to mid-century stuff to get really stellar examples. Yeah. yeah. And we, yeah. Yeah, uh, I guess we were talking, drawing parallels with a, a Parisian street or a street in Barcelona where um, actually it can be done. You know, and that, that scale and that can feel incredibly humane and um, and um, comfortable and nice and it's the sort of thing we travel to go and see mm. and be part of um, but when there's a threat of it happening in New Zealand I can, I can understand the hesitancy saying well what does this what does this mean what's it going to be like um, because there's nothing necessarily local that is a parallel mm. so but as you say it's, it's, it is a separate issue enabling it and, and making it good is a separate thing well, I think we also need to change our attitudes to, say, apartment buildings and rather than seeing them as a second-rate living option, actually see them as a, another viable housing choice. I think that there are still a lot of apartments that are coming to the market that are almost designed like hotel rooms, um, you know, that, that haven't been thought through in terms of somebody's going to live here. They might choose to live here for the next 10, 15 years. You know, how do we promote sort of... Longer, longer tenure options for renters or, you know, other ways of getting into housing and actually ensuring that the apartments and denser forms of living provide all of those things that actually support living, long-term living. Some of the new apartments are doing that really well and then, you know, some are arguably not. <laughs> but, but you both believe as practitioners in this field that it's totally possible for councils to be able to regulate to ensure that buildings meet standards that don't make people hate them, well, the majority of people hate them. Yeah, I look, I think there are a range of tools that could be used and they're probably not being used to full extent at the moment. Um, Why do you think that is? I, I think that there is a... Look, I mean, I, I'm a little bit averse to kind of hard and fast rules as well. Like I remember having a conversation last year or the year before actually I was lucky enough to visit um, the Nightingale project in Melbourne which is amazing and really sort of flips some of these ideas about how you might live um, in an apartment building on the head in terms of providing communal services um, like laundry for all residents and doing a number of other things to promote community. Um, the apartments themselves were beautiful, like I would have lived in one tomorrow, um, but they didn't subscribe to all of the kind of market, you know, general market check boxes that mm -hmm. you might assume. Um, 
So um, to digress a bit there, one of the things that the architect, project architect was talking about was a local law that had come in about the maximum depth of the living areas and kitchen areas, which that apartment that I was in would have exceeded, it wouldn't have complied with it, and yet here was an absolutely fantastic, cracking livable apartment solution. that provided a hmm. very livable solution. So there are difficulties with kind of hard and fast rules, but then on the other hand, how do we start getting better design outcomes? Well, uh, I think it's, it's a the, tricky one. The, the fact that people are complaining about the potential of them happening and the fact that we get um, not very good quality delivered is linked, right? So there's a, it's a supply and demand thing in that the, um, the demand probably is through necessity and um, and we're delivering cheap stuff. Um, if everyone supported apartments wanted to live in one, then we'd get better stuff. Yeah. yeah. We're only probably, the majority of multi-unit housing I suspect, um, we're probably only delivering the bottom end of, of what medium density um, can do. Um, so, and that reinforces the fact that people don't particularly want it. I, look, I, I totally agree. And, you know, you see the kind of stuff at the lower end of the market. And, you know, it goes down to sort of choice of finishing materials. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to review some of those things. And and you sort of think, oh, there might be a paint-by-numbers approach to kind of exterior materials. And you know, I'm looking at all the junctions and thinking, shit, they're going to look pretty bad on day one, let alone 20 years down the track. Wouldn't you be better to just clad it in a, a single robust material or make it good, but somebody's sort of trying to fulfil the break the building mess yeah. down <laughs> by yeah. introducing a number of different materials. It's like, give me more materiality, just do it well. So the rules can create inadvertent complications. I think so, mm. you know, and I, I, I don't envy anybody trying to get buildings through the hoopla of of both planning and building regulations these days. It is not easy. But, um, yeah, I think that some of the rules or kind of accepted ways of doing things are not producing great outcomes either. It sounds like you're advocating for a kind of discussion-based approach where it's a sort of trade here, trade there with guidelines rather than rules, yeah? I, I genuinely think, actually, um, that more of, of kind of the panel discussions, um, that kind of planning approval produces generally better outcomes because uh -huh. you're able to evaluate the merits of each scheme in its context. Um, you know, not just physical context, but, you know, perhaps economic context, what you're trying to do with the overall um, street. Because the thing is, when you're looking at densifying cities in this way, it's about the it's it's the individual buildings are important but also what's important is how they contribute to the wider streetscape and area um, and so understanding all of that what you know what is the context of the street how is it linked to the kind of the shopping center or transport or how what does it you know what does it need to say on the at this wider urban level um, you can't you can't do that if you're applying the same rules to every site and building. Yeah, I see what you mean. I was thinking also that, and this is getting slightly outside our discussion topic here, but also Wellington's been hit by this particularly hard, and that housing, of course, 
as we all know, is a really complicated ecosystem, which is not just about design, but it's about finance, it's about supply, yeah. it's about all these things. But also in Wellington, there's this complicated overlay of the body corporate rules mm. where um, a lot of apartment buildings have had to do massive strengthening and the upgrading of the earthquake legislation, which has left a lot of people essentially broke in a terrible, terrible way, and other people really wary of buying into apartment developments. But also I think that it's still the case that body corporates lack the legal teeth to chase absentee owners who decide not to pay fees. Um, and so that it means that there's not a robust legal basis for a lot of these body corporates to exist and to enforce what needs to happen to keep the buildings to a certain standard. And until that confidence in the apartment mm. market can be underpinned by this sort of thing, people are still going to want to buy standalone kind of unit type, you know, individually individual bits of land with houses on them, which is not the way forward for our cities. Oh, look, totally agree. I mean, there's so much uncertainty about that future um, for potential buyers. And, um, you know, I just... Uh, and, and it goes back to those things like maintenance and how mm. we'll get, you know, go on. And I don't think actually um, at the development stage enough of that sort of management long-term is being thought about in terms of the way the actual the buildings and the properties are being constructed to facilitate good management over time. Because it's not real, often not real to the people who are no. um, who are um, commissioning it. No, yeah. exactly. They've said goodbye. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Hey, look, we'd like to use this material because it's low maintenance. Well. Yeah, in the end, it might come down to a square meter rate rather than you know cost per square meter. Rather than this will be great for the people who own this building in the future to maintain. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. In thirty years' time. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Never have to paint this. Well, yeah, it's not my concern. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Complex is you know incredibly complex um, problem. You talk about Gerald Parsonson's apartment. Could you call it an apartment building? Yeah, it was. Um, so I did. I put on Twitter, on my Twitter, um, a really good apartment complex in Mount Victoria that Parsons and Architects designed, and it was a Home of the Year finalist. And I think twenty sixteen or seventeen when I was editing Home Magazine, um, and it was the site of a single villa, and this was done under the old regulations. Mm. Um, and I put it on Twitter because. Everybody was talking about how median density is ugly, and I was going, kind of like, well, here's an example in your own backyard. It's a cracking apartment building. It's really great. It's really good. And so this was one four-bedroom place. It is now, oh, I forget the exact number of apartments, maybe eight and a total of 16 bedrooms on that same mm. site. Um, and all just for rent, actually. None of them were unit titled for sale. But it was interesting because one of the heritage groups saw this tweet and said, pretty disingenuously. Oh, look, it shows the existing rules work fantastically. And luckily, <laughs> I kind of linked to the PDF of the story and not me, but somebody else kind of went, could you just check Gerald Parsonson's answer to Jeremy's question on whatever page it was? And I'd actually asked Gerald back then, I said, what was the consent process like? And I think Gerald's actual quote was, it was a complete bastard. And <laughs> if the developer hadn't been so patient and had such deep pockets and had such a long-term view of the potential of that site, it would never have happened mm. because all these people objected to a development which we can, um, we'll put the pictures on our own on 76 small rooms um, feed, but 
it was fantastic and it just showed the potential of so many single villa sites um, in Wellington to um, be developed in a way that was in accordance with the neighbourhood didn't wasn't six um, six stories but if a whole lot more sites within that neighbourhood were able to do that um, you're getting a whole lot more people in that suburb mm. without anyone having to freak out about it and look I think that that development actually contributes to the character of the neighbourhood. You know, there's this, so much <laughs> in, in, the, in the arguments about heritage, nobody sort of even factors in that actually there is the potential to create new heritage every yeah, day. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I would think that, that that building in another 20 or 30 years will be a really important, iconic building in that area. Mm. A related question, and I should know the answer to this since I co-wrote a book on villas, but I don't know the answer to it. Why are people so fucking obsessed with villas? And I'm sorry to swear, but I don't understand it. <laughs> uh, because they're traditionally built in locations that are now highly valuable. Oh, so you reckon it's the it's the proximity to cities as much as the building type? No, I think it's the people who own them. <laughs> I think. I think. How would you describe those people? <laughs> I own them. <laughs> In a city, yeah, they're, they're valuable because they're where people want to live. Right. Yep. Um, and um, and maybe materials. And I also think that villas do nice things to streets mm-hmm. because they were all built in a row with an equal. You know, they define their street edges typically very, yep. very well. Yep. You know, they describe often the topography because each one usually follows the hill if they're on a steep side. So people, I think, read into that their street experience as much as they do the the villa. You know, because you're often walking down a street that you can see the windows. They're not sort of. Usually, they're generous to the street. They are generous and they to give a garden to the street often. often. Yep, and there's that really clear understanding about that kind of, you know, semi-public space, that forum mm. between the front of the house and the street. Yeah, it's interesting actually now when you look at the suburbs you're talking about, Matthew, which are like Herne Bay, for example, mm. which, and we had a couple of pages in the book where Patrick Reynolds took all these great photos and he called it vilification, the section where, <laughs> you know, that and some of them were just bad renovations but also there's this kind of fortress villa now where it's been often lifted up to create a triple garage underneath mm. so you have this kind of gaping more of a kind of garage door facing the street rather than a delicate bay and a little garden but also massive walls and punch code gates and yep. things like that so they've been sort of the charm has been fortified out of them in a lot of areas as the kind of capital gains have been locked in i suppose yeah and look i don't think that those areas or those villas are as charming as the ones where they address the street you know and that's probably not what people think of when they think of the villa either no, the, the fortified renovated ones. ones all qualify all um comply with heritage restrictions oh yeah they? i know i know yeah but you know that's i Which, don't think that's what everybody thinks of when they think of the cutesy villa no that's right but it's um it's interesting that they basically, to my mind, almost entirely changed the character in these sort of steroidal renovations. But they comply with regulations at the same time. So character's not... It's poorly defined in that sense, right? Because it's done on individual building levels rather than neighbourhood levels. Yeah, I mean, in theory it's supposed to be done on neighbourhood levels. Is it also something about verandas and fretwork and that sort of shit? Oh, yeah. You know, everyone likes their doilies. 
Yeah, that's right. I'm sort of grimacing as I say yeah. this. You, yeah, you, you talk about materials and is it the materials that make the, the villa? You know, I can just imagine sitting down with a client saying, hey, look, what I want to do is get some biodegradable timber <laughs> and wrap your building in it and paint it every few years and stick some twiddly bits on the corner. <laughs> you can just imagine the conversation. So, I don't know, would we do it again? You know, would you, no one builds villas from scratch, do they? Some people do. Do they? It's a bad idea. <laughs> well, the, the weird thing about all these stupid Wellingtonians complaining that they might lose sun to their um, villas and bungalows is like half of them have never That's had right. a ray of sun in their yeah. fucking lives. I've only got one window, don't, don't take the sun away from them. The Victorians were not designing for the light. There are these narrow sites they don't give a shit about whether they're no. facing north or south or whatever, tucked in behind massive hills with large pine trees on yeah. them in the town belt. It's quite. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm going to be really interested to see how the submissions to the spatial plan go, because they closed yeah. recently, last week. Um, and there has been some really active and, I think, quite successful lobbying on the behalf of um, a, a few groups who are quite motivated, you know, protect the, to protect the city and its future, um, who have been following on social media. But I worry because I think local democracy often ends up being tipped in favour of the people who are most deeply financially invested in the future of those places, which is the people that own these villas who are desperate to protect them from this kind of threat, which isn't really even... Except except that central government might just take that ability to protect them away. the, 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 The bill which enables or stops restrictions gotcha. around city centres. You know, it's actually quite hard to resist that mm-hmm. from you know, yeah. at a local level. Yeah, right. I mean, I would really like Tash to be a housing minister um, <laughs> because if I was, I'd just be saying, burn the fucking things to the ground. Is it um, <laughs> But Tash has a much more nuanced and sensible approach than me and she <laughs> understands much more about urban planning. <laughs> well, I thought the plan was incre- incredibly reasonable, the spatial plan. So, you know, it's... Uh, looking at a whole lot of different types of development and I hope it goes through. And this is really, I mean, I wondered when we were planning to discuss this, I was like, oh, we're a podcast about architecture, is this architecture? But it fundamentally is, right? Do you both think? Oh, hell yeah. Mm. This is, I think that in a way this is absolutely where the architectural debate should be at. It's, mm. you know, it's not really about the merits of an individual house anymore, or shouldn't be. It's a really, that's a lovely thing, but that's actually not how architecture is most impactful to most people who live um, in our country. It's around housing, public buildings, the quality of our spaces and our urban environments. Mm. I think that's a really good point to clock out on if everybody's happy with that. Absolutely. Thank you for listening everybody. Thank you for editing Arch. See you next time. Yeah, also, we apologise for kind of being offline for so long, but it's been like herding cats trying to get us all in the room together. It's it's got a new result yeah. moving forward. Interrupted by global pandemics. Yeah. But yeah, if you're not from Wellington and you haven't been following, it is really interesting just to tune in on social media to the debate around the, the spatial plan. And um, this debate that they're having there is also going to play out in other cities as this government legislation needs to start being enacted um, over greater swathes of our cities. Um, so please use your voices um, if it's timely in the places you live to, to have your say and to, if you're um, on our side. <laughs> Otherwise <laughs> keep quiet. Advocate for greater density, greater affordability and generally excellent architectural outcomes. Thanks everyone. Very good. Kaki te
Bye-bye. Bye.